Eve, I just want to know what happened. I just want to know the whole story. I want people to know that she was more than a prostitute. She was more than a dancer. She was our little sister, and we loved her with our whole heart. She was with us since she was three, four months old, until they took her away and gave her back to her biological mom, Ruth. Whenever anything went wrong, Lisa always came home. Mom and dad were always mom and dad. We were always her brothers and sisters. If there was a birthday party, if there was a Christmas, if there was anything going on, she was there. She was my sister. And no matter what anybody says, sorry, what anybody says, she was ours. She, she belonged with us. And the fact that they took her away makes me fucking angry. That was Sharon Turling. Her foster sister, Lisa Gavin, was murdered in August 1988. Even after 35 years, the pain of losing Lisa has never gone away, and Sharon still searches for answers. Between April 1988 and August 1990, a serial killer murdered six sex trade workers and dumped their bodies in the laneways of Vancouver. Officially, the murders are unsolved, and three appear on the Vancouver Police Department's cold case website. But according to two detectives who worked on a joint RCMP-VPD task force called E-Alley, the detectives say they know who killed these women, and he died in 2007. This is Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, The Alley Murders. Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. Being a sex trade worker, especially one who works on the street corners of Vancouver, has always been a dangerous business. But in the 1980s and 90s, it was especially deadly. Years before Robert Picton became one of the most prolific serial killers in Canadian history, there are other predators. During the initial investigation into missing and murdered women in the late 1990s, Robert Picton was one of an astounding 374 potential serial killers on the Vancouver Police Department suspect list. And while this is not a story about Robert Picton, it is a story about the murders of sex trade workers in the downtown east side, and so aspects of his case are included in this episode. By the spring of 1998, at least 400 women were working in the sex trade in the downtown east side. And over the years, dozens had just vanished. It didn't help that these women, many of them mothers, and most of them Indigenous, were portrayed in the media as prostitutes, hookers and drug addicts. These women were a low priority for the Vancouver Police Department and a lot of the male police officers had dubbed them the missing whores. But when the numbers became too large to ignore, the VPD struck up a task force. Detective Laurie Shenher was the lead investigator, Jeremy Field was the supervisor, and they were soon joined by a third woman, Detective Constable Alex Clark. Their assignment was Project Amelia, a unit named for Amelia Earhart, 
the famous pilot who disappeared without a trace, in 1937. In the book That Lonely Section of Hell, Laurie Schenner, who transitioned to male in 2015 and is now known as Lorimer, describes his experiences working on the task force. Schenner says that other detectives avoided Project Amelia like the plague. They had no mandate from management, no budget, little guidance from senior staff, and just a token show of support for something that no one really cared about. This is retired Detective Alex Clark. My name is Alex Clark, and I was sworn in as a Vancouver police officer in 1992. I worked the first five years in patrol, always in the downtown east side. From 2006 to 2009, I was seconded to the RCMP, and it was a joint task force. That was Yelly. My rank was Detective Constable. What was it like working on the task force? It was called the Missing Women's Task Force slash Project Amelia, but there was no real resources put into it or anything. It was just find these women, basically. Prove they're not missing. Come on. These yeah. people, don't, they don't just fall off the face of the earth. We have no bodies. We have really nothing, nothing at all. No crime scenes, no bodies. Prove these people are not missing, that they have left the province, the country, moved on with their life. What I've learned is they don't. You know, if you want to go missing, you can, but this one in, what, a million that actually moved back to Toronto and changed their name? Let's face it, most of these people were just expendable human beings. We were basically told, wrap this up. There's more important things to do. Because the big thing at the time, too, was the uh, home invasion. So we're sitting next door to a home invasion task force that has the cast of thousands, and they're investing all this time into the cast of thousands and this home invasion because those were the big things. Frustrated by a lack of resources and cooperation, Sergeant Field called for a joint task force made up of Vancouver Police Department and RCMP investigators. Project Amelia, the Missing Women's Investigation, was rolled into an investigation that included files of murdered sex trade workers that had long gone cold. Investigators were especially interested in a cluster of unsolved murders from 1995, where the bodies of three downtown Eastside sex trade workers were found on logging roads in the Fraser Valley outside Agassiz. The RCMP felt that the same serial killer who was disposing of the bodies of missing women was also responsible for what became known as the Valley Murders. The Joint Forces investigation was named Project Evenhanded. Project Amelia had identified Robert Picton as a prime suspect early in the Missing Women investigation. But because he was outside Vancouver boundaries, his case fell into the hands of Coquitlam RCMP. Now they took another look. Picton's DNA was already on file from an earlier attempted murder investigation. And one of the first things that was done was to test his DNA against the DNA they had retrieved from two of the three Valley murders. It didn't match, and he was eliminated as a suspect in those murders. Unfortunately, by clearing Picton of the Valley murders, it also placed him further down the list as a person of interest in the disappearance of the missing women. The police had for so long denied that a serial killer was behind the disappearances of these women that they couldn't wrap their head around the idea that there was more than one serial killer operating in Vancouver. 
It wasn't until February 2002, more than a year after Project Even Handed was underway, that the investigation into missing women was blown wide open. But it wasn't from the project's investigators. It came about by accident. A junior Coquitlam RCMP officer had a tip that there were illegal firearms on Picton's property. He got a search warrant for the farm, and while he was looking for firearms, he came across a piece of identification and an inhaler that belonged to two of the missing women. Project Even Had It turned into the largest serial murder investigation in Canadian history. Picton was charged with 26 counts of murder from the DNA of missing women found on his property. In the end, he would be convicted for six. It's likely he murdered close to 50. As well as the huge numbers of missing women from the downtown east side, there was a disproportionately high number of sex trade workers from the downtown east side and Mount Pleasant being murdered. Since the early 1980s, women had been killed off and then dumped like garbage in Vancouver's laneways, on North Vancouver's Mount Seymour, in bushland in Richmond, Coquitlam, Maple Ridge, Surrey, Burnaby and Squamish. At the first meeting of Project Even Handed, analysts said they had found 52 unsolved sex trade worker murders in British Columbia. While all this was going on, women in the downtown east side continued to go missing. The Monumental Scandals Tour by Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours digs into the dirty foundations of the city's most iconic heritage buildings. There's a sensational murder behind the old Vancouver courthouse, backroom deals at the Hotel Vancouver, salacious dances at the old Orpheum Theatre, and the chief of police who liked his gambling bribes delivered in paper bags. This walking tour includes a private look inside the Marine Building, an Art Deco masterpiece built by a rum runner during American Prohibition. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% off your booking by using the code COLDCASE. As well as the three Valley murders, Project Even Handed was looking at another cluster of murders that became known as E. Alley. Between April 1988 and August 1990, six women were strangled and dumped in the back alleys of East Vancouver, Mount Pleasant, Shaughnessy and out of the UBC endowment lands. They were 28-year-old Rose Peters, Lisa Gavin, 21, Glenna Sowen, 25, Tracy Chartran, 25, 33-year-old Frances Annie Grant and 19-year-old Karen Lee Taylor. Four of the women knew each other well. They stayed in Mount Pleasant and worked the Broadway Strip. A local restaurant called Vern Seafood provided a hangout for them and a place to buy drugs. All four were habitual cocaine users. Mount Pleasant skirts Vancouver's east and west sides, and it's a mix of residential and light industry. These days, it's a trendy area of the city, but in 1988, Mount Pleasant was the cocaine capital of Vancouver. That year, police estimated that at least 30 basement suites, apartment buildings and houses in Mount Pleasant were being used by drug dealers to package and sell cocaine. Many of them doubled as shooting galleries for addicts. The investigation into the sex trade worker murders stalled until Detective Alex Clark was asked to find DNA that had been recovered from the crime scenes of unsolved homicides. 
Well, that all started probably 2000. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was Paul Verrill and I. And what I'd actually been asked to do was to just pull DNA from unsolved homicides. So all the unsolved homicides that had potential evidence that could be submitted. They were just starting up the DNA databank at that point. And it had nothing to do with any of the women. It was pretty much all homicides. And then we started to spend a lot of time looking at the unsolved homicides of women, women from the downtown east side, women that were street involved. Then we started to focus in on the women that were, their bodies were dumped in and around the alleyways of Vancouver in the late 80s. And so then we located the DNA, which was amazing. We had it. Some of it we really had to hunt for. And when we eventually found it, it was a huge celebration amongst Paul and I because it was a milestone. It was almost like there's a possibility now because DNA was just starting. It was just opening doors. And it was an exciting time. You connected DNA for two of the victims. That's correct. One of those victims was 21-year-old Lisa Marie Gavin, who was found strangled, beaten and raped. Her body was dumped in the lane behind 9th Street and East 49th and discovered by a resident just before 7 in the morning of August 13, 1988. She was wearing only a black sleeved T-shirt with lace on the sleeves and hem. The blue writing on the T-shirt said, Jerry's Country Inn, Calgary. Lisa was just 5 foot 2 and weighed 123 pounds. She had brown highlighted hair and hazel eyes. Lisa was born in a prison hospital addicted to heroin. Her mother, a drug dealer and drug user, had been in and out of jail since 1957. When Lisa was a few months old, she was placed with the Turlings, a family with four kids of their own who lived on a farm in Richmond, a suburb of Metro Vancouver. She was much loved and treated as the baby of the family. This is Sharon Turling. She was a great kid. She was a funny kid. She loved horses. We grew up on a farm. And she would walk out to the corral up to one of the horses, Shadow, and hold on to his leg. And that old horse would just walk around the corral with that kid on his leg. Just walking around with that kid on his leg. She had no fear. She was always playing. We had cows. We had chickens. We had pigs. It was a wonderful, happy childhood. We had it all. And then we didn't. Lisa stayed with the Turlings until just after her ninth birthday, when the Ministry of Social Services decided it would be a good idea to reunite Lisa with her biological mother, who had now served out her latest sentence for drug trafficking. And then everything started to go wrong. Lisa's biological brother, Jerry Gavin, was one of the leaders of the Clark Park Gang, a group of East Vancouver thugs who terrorised the city. And little Lisa was swept into that world of drugs, sex work and violence. By her early teens, Lisa was addicted to drugs, but she still returned to her Richmond family whenever she could. She was a messed up little girl and all she wanted to do was clean up her life and go to school and she loved my brother. My brother was her protector. She was always daddy's little girl. I was the one she would call. I want to go back to school. I want to clean up my life. And then I'd go down and I'd pick her up from wherever she was or she would take the bus and I'd pick her up and she'd come home and she would eat and she would sleep and stay for four or five days. Then she'd go again. But she always knew that she could come home. 
that was one thing with Lisa, and I think it was kind of her saving grace. No matter what was going on, no matter what the situation, there was no questions asked. She would come home, and whether it was to me, whether it was to my sister, she would always reach out to one of us, and we would drop everything and go get her. We would all do it, and we were all like, oh, we shouldn't do that. You know, we're enabling her, but no, you're, you're not. You just you want her to know that she was safe, and there was no matter what her life was, that she could always come home. On the night that Lisa died, she left a friend's apartment in the 900 block of East Broadway to work to bring back enough money to buy cocaine. Usually, Lisa worked the Mount Pleasant corner at East Broadway and Prince Albert streets. But Sharon Turling happened to be driving past Main and Hastings Street after picking up her fisherman husband just before midnight. She saw Lisa standing at the corner of Main and Hastings, but by the time she turned around to pick her up, Lisa had vanished. So close I could have touched her. So close I could have brought her home. But that's not what happened. Did you feel guilty? Oh, if you feel like shit, like, you know, what if I went a little faster and I got to her and I brought her home? You know, there's all that. What if, what if, what if? In 1996, the Vancouver Police Department told Sharon that Francis Carl Roy, then 38, was a suspect in Lisa's murder. Roy had been charged that year with the first-degree murder of 11-year-old Alison Parrott in Toronto 10 years earlier, but he'd lived in Vancouver between July 1988 and May 1991, the duration of the Alley murders. Sharon says Lisa knew Roy. But in the end, the DNA on Lisa and Glenna's body was not Roy's and he was cleared. Sharon, though, was never told this. I was one of the last people to see Lisa alive. And because of that, I've been the spokesperson for the family. And I've been the one that's been in contact with all the police. Even when I talked to them, like I said, well, what about this guy? And what about this guy? You interviewed this guy, but no, they, they won't tell me anything. So I find that very frustrating. I mean, they've all been super nice, but they are very, very tight-lipped about what they know, what they don't know, and where they're going with the investigation. But I keep calling them, and I keep bugging them, and so I just keep poking them. It's like, come on, you got to know something by now. Just over six weeks after Lisa was murdered, the body of her best friend, 25-year-old Glenna Sowen, was found strangled, beaten, and dumped behind a house on West 24th Avenue. Glenna was also known to work the Broadway Strip in Mount Pleasant. She was born in High Prairie, Alberta, and at the time of her death, had a baby daughter who was just four months old and living with her mother in Alberta. Glenna was five foot two and weighed just 92 pounds. Her body was found just after noon on September 30th, 1988, by a neighbour. She'd been left in the weeds. Her clothing was never found. Brian Ball was one of the original investigators on Glenna Sowen's murder. My name is Brian Ball, and I'm a retired Vancouver police officer. In 1988, I was working as a detective in the homicide office, and two of the cases uh, I was assigned to were the murders of Rose Peters and Glenna Sowen. And then much later, in 2007, I was part of an investigation task force that was investigating the Alley murder cases, which included Peters and Sowen. So Glenn and Sowen, can you tell me a bit about it? She was 
found in an alley off of 24th and Willow in Vancouver on the west side. She was a sex trade worker, had been for a number of years. She was addicted to cocaine. Glenna worked and lived in the Mount Pleasant area. She would stay at different places in the area, usually with her very good friends, Lisa Gavin and Tracy Chartrand. She had a nickname on the street that was Dusty. Obviously, we looked right away at the murder of Lisa Gavin as well because there were very strong similarities between the two. And in the homicide office, it was our team working on Glenna, and then another team was working on Lisa, but we compared notes, and I think everybody agreed that there was a very strong likelihood that the same person killed both women. The last time 25-year-old Tracy Chartrand was seen was in early October, shortly after Glenna Sowen was murdered. Like her two friends... Tracy was a cocaine addict and resorted to sex work to pay for her drugs. When her body was found six months after her murder, was in a shallow grave at the UBC Endowment Lands in RCMP territory. There was no cause of death and no DNA. Tracy was born Tracy Lee Dunn and grew up in North Vancouver. She married Richard Chartrand, they had a son, and were separated at the time of her death. Her funeral was held at the Highlands United Church. Reverend Don Robinson told about 60 people attending that Tracy was fun, witty and bright. He said, She was a person of such beauty, intelligence and capacity to love, but she marched to a different drummer, and she has for a long time. This is Brian Ball. At what point did you tie Tracy Chartran into the other two murders? Tracy went missing in October, but as soon as that missing report came up to our office... Right away, we were thinking, yes, there's a strong possibility that Tracy's going to be tied in with Lisa Gavin and Glenna Sowen. The big thing there was that they were very, very close friends, those three women. And they usually lived together and crashed at the same places. They shared clothing and things like that. So it just seemed like there had to be a connection that she went missing all of a sudden. But her body wasn't found for quite a length of time after. It was April of 1989 when her remains were actually found out on the UBC endowment lands. So do you think he was just getting smarter then by not leaving the bodies to be found the next day in an alley? Possibly, or possibly he just went a little bit further in in a direction. But if you look at where Glenna was and then you look at where Tracy was, It's further, but not too much further. It's just an isolated road that is just onto the endowment lands from 16th Avenue in Vancouver. Like Tracy, 33-year-old Frances Ann Grant, known as Annie, was brought up in North Vancouver. She and her twin brother Jamie were adopted by the Wright family, grew up in Lynn Valley, and went to Sutherland High. Annie married Ron Grant, and at some point she became addicted to cocaine and ended up on the Mount Pleasant stroll. She'd been off the streets for about a year, but was back about a month before her death, working the stretch of Broadway west of Vancouver Community College's King Edward campus. Her body was found in a shed behind a Mount Pleasant rooming house on June 4th, 1989. Here's Brian Ball. It must have been a whole game-changer when you found Annie Grant's body in the shed. 
Yes, Annie Grant was found one morning at 10th and Carolina. There's an old rooming house with a few occupants. In behind the house, there's a laneway, and on the property, there's an old shed. Some fellow was out looking for bottles, just came onto the property, opened the shed door to see what he could find, and got quite a surprise when he found a body, a naked body in there. Do you think she was killed in the shed? No. My belief is that she was killed somewhere close by, moved to the shed, killed within a few hours of this fellow finding her, so somewhere during the evening or night previously, and then was put in the shed for eventual transport, probably to somewhere a little further out. The proximity of Annie's body to the Mount Pleasant house gave police their first big lead, and it led them to one of the residents, a low-level drug dealer and drug user, who for the purposes of this podcast, we are going to call Dan. Dan refused to answer questions, and his name went into the suspect file, and it didn't come out again until Project Ealy took another look in 2007. Here's Brian Ball. Our main focus was on Lisa Gavin Glenisowen and then also on Annie Grant because of her being found where she was. So Dan became not our only person of interest, but he was up near the top of the list. So he was one of the first persons that we tried to get a DNA profile from by doing cast-off DNA. Dan's health was deteriorating, and when we tried to find him, we found that he was a patient at Vancouver General Hospital. So our surveillance team went up to VGH and saw Dan out at the smoking pit right outside the front entrance of the hospital. Within about 10 minutes, Dan had discarded a cigarette butt and a drink container, and our officer had those into an envelope and back to the office. And it was a pretty exciting day at the even-handed office when one morning we all came in. The boss came in and told us that he'd just been notified that there was a DNA match between Dan and the murders of Lisa Gavin and Glenis Allen. Shortly after that time, he was arrested and an interview was done with him, but he didn't provide any admissions at all. Uh, There was actually nothing helpful that came out of the interview. He was released at that point, but then we kept around-the-clock surveillance on him. Because of the DNA match to two of the victims, the proximity of one of the victims to the suspect's house, and the social connection of the fourth victim to the three other women, Brian Ball felt they had a solid case to take to Crown Council and charge Dan with the murders. Council disagreed. They wanted a confession. Brian Ball says there was another problem for Crown. Even though there was bruising around Annie Grant's neck, the pathologist had ruled her death as undetermined. Here's Brian Ball. What about the cause of death with Annie Grant? How did that cause you problems? Our pathologist on the case who had done the autopsy was having problems actually establishing a cause of death. And there were two things that came into play. There were some marks on her neck that were certainly from some degree of strangulation. But when her toxicology came back, her cocaine levels were into overdose territory. 
So the pathologist was torn as to, okay, this is a overdose death with some elements of physical pressure being applied to the neck, but was it enough to actually cause death? Just because of that uncertainty, it made it a little bit difficult for Crown to accept it as a murder. The Vancouver police have always treated any Grant's death as a murder, and I'm sure still on the books as a murder. But that was the problem that came up with Crown. I think if we had been able to say to Crown at that point, here's the third case and this is definitely a murder, then I think Crown would have said, okay, that's good enough, that's enough. But while Crown Council was dithering about whether to lay charges, Dan died. And because Dan died before he could be charged in the murders, Clark and Ball have asked me not to identify him in this podcast. They believe that should come from the Vancouver Police Department. How strongly do you feel that he was responsible for at least four of the six murders? I'm absolutely certain he was. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind. All of the investigators who I worked with feel exactly the same way. Dan has left his DNA on two of the victims. There's a third victim that's in the shed at the back of his house. And there's the fourth victim, Tracy Chartrand. There's nothing forensically because she wasn't found for a number of months. But she was taken from the street or the area and killed right at the time frame of the others, Lisa Gavin and Glennis Allen. I'm so happy to let you know that Erin Haken, an accomplished jewellery designer and goldsmith, has opened a studio in Vancouver. While Erin throws her heart and soul into all her creations, what she most loves to do is design treat-yourself pieces. Erin will work with you to source the perfect stone, choose your favourite metal, produce drawings of your design, and then create a ring that is truly unique to you. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com, and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. EALI investigators believe that one man was responsible for six murders. And while Detectives Ball and Clark are convinced Dan was responsible for four of those murders, connecting these murders and that of Rose Peters and Karen Taylor would prove to be more difficult. Here's Alex Clark. How did you connect the other murders? The two were definitely connected with DNA, and the other ones were connected through time frame and method of crime. And where the bodies were located, whether that be in a a back alley mostly, some of them differed a little bit from case to case, but they were all similar in the sense that they were partially closed and left in the laneway with the exception, of course, of of Annie Graff. Tracy Chartrand. That's a difficult one to answer because her remains were so badly decomposed. She was obviously a missing, and then her remains were found in in UBC Endowment Labs. So connecting Chartrand to the actual series of homicides is a difficult one. She was connected through social circles. So she was friends with Gavin, with Sowen. They were part of a, a larger group of a community that actually made up a portion of Mount Pleasant. 
back in that time in the late 80s, Mount Pleasant is certainly not what it looks like today. It was lots of rental properties, lots of three-story walk-ups, and there was an active sex trade and an active drug population. And you thought he could have been responsible for at least two other murders. How did you tie those into E.L.E.? So with Rose Peters, she actually was a downtown East Side resident. With her, it was the manner in which she was just left in an alley. All her evidence was resubmitted to the lab. And at the time, there was a partial profile, but there wasn't enough. But she fit the profile of the the disposal of her, of her body. Same with Karen Taylor. She was located by a citizen in a back alley, partially clad, same ending place. Chartrand was included because of her association to the same group of people. But again, she wasn't found in an alley. She was found in the endowment lands, a different place, a different scenario completely. Rose Peters was strangled, beaten and sexually assaulted. Her body was found in a laneway behind the 4900 block of St Catharines. That was roughly midway between where Glenna Sowen and Lisa Gavin's bodies were found, and almost directly south from where Annie Grant's body was discovered in a shed behind the suspect's house. Alex Clark says there was a partial DNA profile found on Rose's body, but not enough to test at the time. Rose was a 28-year-old Indigenous woman from Port Alberni. Ten years before her murder, when she was only 18, she was shot in the neck by a police bullet as she walked too close to the scene of a bungled robbery. Rose was left partially paralysed with a slight limp. Shortly after she got out of hospital, she moved to the downtown east side and began using the street drug Talwin. Talwin was an addictive prescription drug used as a heroin substitute. Users would crush it up with Ritalin and shoot it up. In 1982, Rose had a son, Richard, who was put into foster care. Three years later, she was living with her boyfriend, Mark Lipset, and had another son. He was also put into the system. While strangulation was the same cause of death as the other victims, Rose lived and worked in the downtown east side and would rarely leave the area. Her choice of drug was also different. I spoke to Rose's niece, Linda, in Port Alberni. About two years ago, detectives came to a meeting of missing and murdered Indigenous women and told her that her aunt's case was still unsolved, but they were quite sure they knew who killed her. I never had any pictures of her. I didn't know what she looked like. Oh, so you never met her? Never met her, no. I uh, just knew that she was a sex trade worker. So, yeah, I just kind of put it in the back of my mind. And they had this program called Missing Indigenous Women here that they were trying to give closure to the families, right? I said to the detective, my auntie Rose died in the 80s. And, and he's like, what was her last name? I said, Peters. And he says, we know her quite well. We've been working on her case for 10 years. So yeah, she was part of, they called it Project Alley, and they were kind of looking at three or four possible serial killers at that time. They did have a suspect. They were following him for quite a while. They ended up getting his DNA from a cup he threw out or a cigarette butt, and I guess my auntie had a lot of bite marks on her. She was really fighting 
for her life, and he had bit her all over. They called him in for questioning. Apparently, he had a fanny pack on him when he was going in for questioning. And I guess they had left him in the little room, and he ended up slicing his throat. The detective went back into the room, and he's like, oh, my God, there's blood everywhere. They rush him to the hospital. He lives. They get a slap on the wrist because, you know, they should have patted him down. I don't know how much later on, but they are taking him to the dentist to get his dental imprints because my auntie had bite marks all over her. They were waiting for getting an appointment to get him into the dentist. And in between that time frame, I don't know how long it was, he pulled his teeth out. So now they can't get a dental imprint of his teeth. They were 90% sure that this was the guy. I mean, who goes in for questioning, slices your own throat, and then know when you're going in for dental imprints, you start to pull your teeth out. I think he ended up dying of kidney failure or something like that. The case has not been closed, but as far as they're concerned, that they're 90% sure, 99% sure that he was the killer. He never got convicted, and they never got a confession. I know this is a bizarre story, but I've verified everything she told me. The sixth and last alley murder victim was Karen Lee Taylor. Karen's body was found in a laneway in the 3600 block of Pine Crescent in Shaughnessy on August 24, 1990. This was over 14 months after Annie Grant's body was found. Karen was naked except for some costume jewellery. She was a bubbly 19-year-old from Ontario and an occasional sex worker and not known to take drugs. On the night she died, she'd been out with friends at the Cecil Hotel on Granville Street and left with a girlfriend to get a pizza. It's not clear whether a man had followed them from the pub or if she met him at the restaurant, but she was offered a lot of money to go off with him and that was the last time she was seen alive. At the Missing Women Inquiry in 2012, then-retired RCMP Inspector Don Adam and the officer in charge of Project Evenhanded publicly stated that the ELE investigation led to the discovery of the serial killer responsible for the Alley murders. As Detectives Brian Ball and Alex Clark have told us, Adam told the inquiry that Dan's DNA matched two of the murder victims and a third was connected to his place of residence. Because he died during the investigation, he was not charged and his name was not made public. In April 2014, two years after the public inquiry into the missing and murdered women, the Vancouver Police Department launched a cold case website featuring eight unsolved murders that occurred between 1981 and 2008. In 2015, the VPD added another five cases, two more in 2016 and two more in 2022, bringing the total to 17. The earliest case is a Paul's murder, a South Vancouver couple and their 11-year-old daughter who were murdered in 1958. The most recent is that of Melanie Thompson, a 36-year-old woman who was last seen in 2010 living in the downtown east side in a woman's shelter. Three of the women from the Alley murders, Karen Lee Taylor, Glenna Sowen and Lisa Gavin, are featured in the Vancouver Police Department's cold case website. The other three from the Alley murders, for some reason, are not. 
When Sharon Turling heard that her sister Lisa Gavin was going to be highlighted on the website in 2022, it gave her renewed hope. She thought that maybe now her case would be reopened and her family could finally get some answers. Why did they tell you they put her picture up there? They just said that they wanted to to highlight it and bring some more attention to it. And that's really all the information they gave to me. And we had all sorts of expectations. And maybe now when I was dealing with the detectives down there and I ran pictures down there and yeah, it's been so frustrating. I will go to my grave trying to find out who did this to her. And even if they're dead and gone, it doesn't matter. She deserves it. She was a good kid that got a really, really, really shitty deal. Here's Brian Ball. So the families, or at least one of the families of the victims, still think that their murderer is wandering around. What would you like to see happen now? What I think should happen is that the VPD should come out and do a news conference and present the facts on this case. This is a case where four people have been murdered by this person named Dan. It's clear to everybody that's worked on it that he's the person responsible. There's nothing more to investigate, in my opinion. And I believe that everybody has a right to know who this guy was, his picture, what his name is. But more than just the public, I think family members who don't know have a right to know all of the details about the case and why this is the guy that was responsible for the murder of their loved ones. What was your reaction when you saw that the VPD had added uh, Glenna and Lisa Gavin to their cold case website last year? I was very surprised. I thought, here's a case where its only thing missing is Crown saying, yes, we okay charges, but everything is there to say it's solved. And in my opinion, when we left off on it and it was returned to VPD, there was nowhere further to go. So I was very surprised to see it, but if they were looking for further information on the case, well, I hope they got it, but if they haven't received that, then I really think that that's just another reason to close the door on the whole thing. And Brian, why are you reluctant in giving his name? I'm reluctant to put his name out there just because I don't think it should come from me. I think it should come from the Vancouver police in a proper press release saying that the killer of these women has been identified. This is who he is, and he's now deceased. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Thank you so much for listening. And a special thanks to retired detectives Alex Clark and Brian Ball. I couldn't have put this episode together without their knowledge and experience and the care that they gave to these cases. If you would like more information on this or other cold cases, please go to my website, evelazarus.com, or join us on the Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada. I'm Eve Lazarus, and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada, and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada 
and his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934, there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher.